All right, well, we're going to continue along those lines, the theme of hope, and we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2, a story that no doubt many of us are familiar with, the story of these wise men coming to visit Jesus. So go ahead and open up your Bibles there. Uh, The title for today is Hope is Where the Heart Is, and uh, it wouldn't be a good Christmas series without a good cheesy Christmas title. So there you go, Hope is Where the Heart Is. That's our title for today. But hope in a biblical sense, can be difficult, I think, for us to really understand because we use the word hope very differently than the way that the Bible actually uses it. When we use the word hope, we are talking about things that we desire to happen that is probably unlikely, right? I had hoped that the men's national team might have taken the World Cup this year, but that was very hopeful. It was a a long shot, to put it nicely. Um, we all hope for good weather. If we're going to have an event outside or we're going to do something out in the open, we're hoping for good weather. But uh, one thing I've learned since I've moved up here is you can't put a lot of uh, hope in the weather report. It's not always accurate. In fact, more often than not, it's not accurate. The best, the best hope you have is to go outside and just look. Um, and so that's what I've learned. Cody also, he hopes that the Seahawks will make it to the Super Bowl, but he's dreaming. He is dreaming. It's a hope. And it's not likely to happen. That is the way that we commonly use the word hope, right? So when we say hope, that's the way that we use it. It's a wish that we wish would happen. And if it does, it's amazing. It's wonderful. But more often than not, it doesn't. The Bible uses the word hope very differently. It uses it very differently. Imagine or think about Jeremiah 29, 11, those famous verses where God promises the people of Israel who are in Babylonian captivity and they're obviously very distraught over this. And he promises them that, that he has a plan for them, right? To give them a future and a hope. And that hope is describing the plans of God which are always true and will always come to pass, right? It's not just something that might happen if we're lucky. Um, Or like we read a moment ago in Psalm 62, what a wonderful psalm that describes hope in this way, uses words like rock and fortress and refuge. Those are the, the synonyms that we use with the word hope in the Bible. They're solid foundations, right? Things that we can trust in. Uh, Hebrews 6, 19, famously, that describes our hope in God's promises as an anchor to the soul. That's not something that is uh, flimsy. Or near the end of the book of Romans, we read this in chapter 15, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance uh, we, of the scriptures, we might have hope. Um, and that's what we're doing today. We are reading about the events that have happened in former days. Of course, in the context, he was talking about Old Testament scriptures, but all of these are past things that God is teaching us to give us hope, which is a solid foundation, something trustworthy that we can hold on to. Um, and that's what we're going to look at today. So how should we redefine hope in light of the scriptures? Here's a definition I suggest, a confident expectation that what we desire can be realized in God. And that last prepositional phrase, in God, is crucial to the definition, right? Our hope is only as good as the object or the person, in this case, that it rests upon. If our hope is on the weather report, we likely will be disappointed. If our hope is on sports commentators or on athletes, we're going to be disappointed. If our hope is in a political figure, we are more than likely to be disappointed because of that, right? 
The object of our hope must be something or someone who will never and can never crumble, and that is God alone. In this story before us, we see two different groups of people, right? We see uh, Herod and we see these wise men, and we're going to look at their stories together. And throughout their stories, it reveals where their hope is found. And what we see is that where their hope is found is where their hearts are drawn to worship And it ultimately determines where they are headed in the end, where they are headed in the future. So the principle for us to consider is where we put our hope draws in our hearts to worship and determines where we are headed. Uh, So let's go ahead and read now from Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 12 verses of that chapter. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you had found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So in this story, we see really there's two different kings, a false king and a true king. There are two forms of worship. There's a false worship and true worship. And of course, there's two forms of hope. I think you see where I'm going with this. There is true hope and false hope. So let's start by looking at the hope of Herod the king. So besides Jesus, the first person that's mentioned in this text is this person named Herod the king. He is also known as Herod the Great, Uh, not necessarily because he was all that great, but because he was the first in a line of men named Herod who were a ruling dynasty there in Palestine, and so he was the first one. And this Herod was very well known for building lavish construction projects. Um, He built a, uh, not a temple, but a palace in his own name there in Jericho. He built all these different things. In fact, he expanded the temple of God there to the, the greatest degree that it has ever been up to that point. And so he was doing all of these types of things to earn favor with people. And uh, of course, favor with the Romans. Herod was given the title King of the Jews by the Roman Senate, and he was told by the governor, or he was to be the governor, rather, over Galilee. Um, Essentially, he was a puppet ruler for the Romans, right? The Romans were really ruling, and he was their puppet. But even though he was called, quote, King of the Jews, his lineage is pretty questionable. The biblical context here is important, so bear with me for a moment as I give you a little bit of detail about this complex family history of Herod. Herod was actually an Edomite, which means he descended from Esau, not from Jacob. 
Uh, If you read through the early portions of the Bible in the book of Genesis, you'll know some of this, but you'll know that God called a man named Abraham out of Ur, um, and he made a covenant with him to give him the land of Canaan. And then Abraham, even in his old age with his wife, who was also old, they had a son named Isaac. Isaac then had twin boys named Jacob and Esau. So these are the two boys. Jacob and Esau literally wrestled in their mother's womb when they were uh, not yet born. And God had to explain to Rebekah, their mother, that both sons would become rival nations, that they would grow to, to fight one another, and that Jacob, the younger, would rule over Esau, uh, the older. Jacob eventually was given the name Israel by God after a time of struggling with him. And from his 12 sons come the 12 tribes of Israel. Those are the people that we've been looking at in the book of uh, Exodus, the Israelites. But Esau and his descendants were called the Edomites, and they fought together with the Israelites for centuries. In Herod's day, the Edomites had become intermixed with the Israelites after centuries of conflicts, and, he, and many of them converted to Judaism. They went back, and they converted to Judaism from the paganism that they were in. Herod claimed to be a Jewish, but again, his lineage, and most importantly, his actions are very questionable that we see. He was very well known for being opulent and flaunting his wealth uh, that he had gained and the power that he had gained from the Roman rulers. He was rich and powerful, and he maintained his power with bloodshed. According to historians, he always feared potential rivals for taking the throne, and so he had his wife's brother, actually, who he appointed as high priest, murdered by being drowned in his swimming pool in his his, uh, palace. He actually put to death 46 members of the Sanhedrin, which were the ruling uh, religious leaders there in Israel, and, and so he had them put to death. He even had his wife Miriam put to death and two of their sons because he considered that they might come and try to take his throne. And so he was a very um, you know, violent person. In fact, historical records report that um, Augustus Caesar said this, quote, it is better to be Herod's dog than one of his kids or one of his children. So this king of the Jews was clearly a power-hungry, prideful, and brutally violent man. And so when these magi come, these wise men from the east, they arrive there in Jerusalem and they say, where is this the true king of the Jews? Uh, We saw his star. We have been waiting for him to arrive. He's here. And what does he do? He immediately becomes terrified that his throne is in jeopardy. He is in, in danger, he feels. And so he begins to plot a way that he can destroy this new king of uh, the Jews. He pretends to be a, you know, a holy Jewish man. He, he gathers the, the religious leaders, the scribes, and the Pharisees. Hey, let's study the Bible. Let's find out where does this Christ come from so I can go and worship him. And they determine, oh, he, he should be born in Bethlehem. And so he tells that to the, to the wise men, and the wise men go. But he tells the wise men, when you go and find him, let me know because I want to worship him too. But of course, we know that's all a ruse, right? He doesn't actually want to do that. In fact, what he does is he sends out an order uh, because the Magi don't uh, go back and tell him. He sends out an order that all the the boys under two years old in Bethlehem and the area around should be put to death. Um, And so he tries to destroy this Jewish king, this Christ, the Messiah. But God, of course, protects Jesus and him and his family are sent into Egypt and then eventually they return to Nazareth after after Herod dies. And he died from a horrible illness. According to um, the famous Jewish historian Josephus, Herod died in Jericho after an excruciatingly painful, 
petrifying illness of uncertain cause uh, that became to be known Herod's evil. So his, his illness was so bad, they, they named it after his own evil. And Josephus also reported that Herod was so concerned as he was on his deathbed that people would not mourn his passing, that he actually forced them to go and gather some um, important men of, of the area to bring them, and then they were to be put to death when he died so that the mourning that they received, he might receive as well. And this was in his brain. Of course, his son didn't do that, and those men didn't get killed, but this is how Herod died. He died painfully and alone, mourned by no one. Uh, it's a very dark ending, right? Why do I go into all that dark detail? Well, uh, the history nerd in me just thought it was kind of cool, first of all, but also it's important because it highlights the principle that we're looking at in this story, right? Where we put our hope draws in our hearts to worship and determines where we are headed. So if we have that in our mind, Herod's hope was clearly in his own power, in his own wealth, in his own position, his prestige, and he protected those things with deceit and with murder, and as a result, his heart was drawn to worship those things, to worship power and fame and, and money and to belittle others and to feign religiousness, right? To, to act as if he knew the scriptures and was wanting to worship this Christ, but that's not really the case at all. He was doing that as a lie um, to worship his true hope. So his hope was in his own power and his heart worshiped that power. And those things led to a very gruesome and, and a sad end. And of course, it was not only the horrible way that he ended up dying, but much worse, it was the fact that he never submitted to God, right? He never turned to him and repented. Um, and so he was doomed to an eternity in hell, separated from God and in torment, uh, which really is the darkest thing. And that's not something we often talk about, but it's something that's important to this story and important to the, the reality of, of the world that we live in, a fallen world where all of us are in this situation where um, that is our end. Uh, similarly, if we do not turn and, and put our only hope in the true king, in Jesus. And so that's, uh, you know, a cautionary tale for us. And it would be easy, though, for us to look at Herod and to point the finger and say, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. Um, but if we're honest with ourselves, there's probably a lot of things, um, you know, that he was susceptible to that we are also susceptible to. We're susceptible to pride, to making other things our greatest hope and not Christ alone, right? It's easy for us to put our hope in our position at work. Uh, it's easy for us to put hope in our position at the church even to, to, uh, to elevate that and make that thing the thing that if we attain, then we have some uh, measure of, of you know, success um, or the effectiveness of the way that we parent our children. There's all sorts of things that we might put our ultimate hope in without even realizing it. And then that leads us to do things that are harmful to us, that are opposed to God's law. And there are many things that we hope in that will fail us. And again, if we hope in those lesser things, then we will turn that hope into an object of worship. We will sacrifice things for that idol. We will neglect the love of God, neglect others, and put that thing as the most prominent thing. And in the end, if we never turn back to God and place God as our only hope, then we are headed for the same kind of destruction. Herod had this false hope and that led to this false worship that he was giving and eventually a dark end. But what about these, these wise men? The pattern with them seems quite different. So let's consider their hope. As I was looking at the story, the thing that was interesting to me, it's sort of a, a puzzling story. These, 
men from the east, these foreigners, come to worship this king. And one of the things that's interesting is it highlights the fact that God draws people to worship him from all corners of the world, from every part of society. And it's amazing to see that these men, who uh, we'll find in a moment, knew that this Messiah was coming, and they came and they worshiped him. Uh, but it is some, somewhat of a strange story to include in the Christmas story. But I think Matthew um, and the Holy Spirit through Matthew is helping us to see a few important things. So let's take a look at that. Um, these foreigners came from the east. They were, it was most likely Persia. These magi or wise men, um, as it's translated here in the ESV, uh, were previously a part of the Babylonian Empire in historical times. And um, the... the, the ex-high school teacher in me has to show a visual for you guys. So I'll show you a map. Um, over here, this is where northern Persia is. Babylonia was here. And so these wise men more than likely crossed the Arabian Desert, came over here. Uh, the story that we've been talking about lately, Joseph and Mary are from this town up here in Nazareth in Galilee. They traveled all the way down to Bethlehem, and that's where the story takes place. Of course, the Magi go to Jerusalem. They find out they need to go to Bethlehem, and so that's kind of where we're at. Um, but it's always helpful when, when people throw out place names and all that kind of stuff to see it visually, so hopefully that was helpful for you. But this group of Magi, they traveled 800 to 900 miles to come and to worship this king that they, that they learned about. Most biblical scholars think that they knew about the Messiah um, because they were instructed by the prophet Daniel. You might remember, if you read in the Old Testament, Daniel was a devout and noble Israelite who was taken into captivity into Babylon, that place on the map that we saw. And he, after he correctly um, determined the meaning of a dream from the king there, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar made him an important person. Daniel 2.48 says this, Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. So the wise men there in, in Daniel 2 is the same line of, of men we're talking about. They were a priestly group of political uh, figures who were involved in government, but they were also involved in helping the king determine signs and wonders and that sort of thing. And so these men were instructed by Daniel hundreds of years earlier, in fact, 580 years before Christ came on the scene. Um, and that tradition continued. In fact, these men were most likely uh, aware of the prophecy of Balaam, which we read in Numbers 24, 17, which says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So they were aware that a star was going to indicate this rise of a leader that will come from Jacob or will come from Israel. And so that's what they were aware of, and they had been studying these stars and, and studying the scriptures, and now they're here on the scene. Um, we should also say that we don't know exactly how many of them there were, because there were three gifts, tradition holds, there were three wise men or three kings, right? Sometimes they're called, although it's hard to say if they were to that level of, um, you know, stature, but these men were probably, there were probably more than that. Um, there were probably servants with them. There were probably more people, but that's what tradition holds. Also, keep in mind that they did not find Jesus the same night 
that the, uh, that the shepherds go that we saw last week. Even though most nativity scenes will have all these characters sort of together, that's not the way it took place. We see later that they meet Mary in a home in Bethlehem. And so this is probably weeks, months, maybe even years after the events that we looked at last Sunday. So they arrive, and what can we learn from these guys? Well, it seems clear that their hope was firmly in the right location, right? They were, had their hope in the true king, this boy, Jesus, this Christ child. And they had no doubt studied the prophecies for many years, and these miraculous signs of the star, this appeared, and it guided them right to where the Savior was. And their hope drew their hearts to worship, right? They came to worship. They were drawn in by God to worship rightly. And so let me give you a few principles I think we can learn from the way that they worship. The first is that true worship is based in God's word, right? We see that they studied the scriptures. They poured themselves into it. Um, the extent of their knowledge is hard to know for sure, but they at least understood that a Messiah was coming out of Israel and it would happen in this way. And so they studied the scriptures diligently to help them learn how to worship, who rightly to worship. And the same is true for us. That's why we take the scriptures very seriously. It is the foundation for all that we do in, the, in this building and throughout our lives. As we worship God, we need to keep the scriptures as the foundation and let it guide us and not let, you know, fads, uh, modern fads or modern ways of doing it or thinking about it or even, even ancient ways. We have to keep the word at the center and allow it to guide us in all those forms. The second thing to take note of is that true worship is demonstrated through sacrificial commitment. I think we definitely see that commitment in these guys. Like I mentioned, the group of men, possibly a whole entourage of people were with them. They journeyed hundreds of miles. They no doubt had animals to help them bring the supplies that they had, which needed food and water. And this journey took no doubt many weeks or months to get across the desert and to come and to worship. So it was a difficult and expensive endeavor that they were doing, but they were doing it because they, it was worth the sacrifice to worship at the feet of this little baby king, right? I wonder, would we be willing to make a journey as egregious as that to do that, to worship our God? Uh, we know that, uh, you know, our homes are not 900 miles from the church, but oftentimes we can come up with excuses for why we might not uh, come one Sunday. And so I think it's important for us to keep in mind that to, to truly worship, we must have that sacrificial commitment. And this is not to put a guilt trip on anybody. We know that there are legitimate reasons for not uh, being a church, of course. But I think the, the point is made well that these men were willing to sacrifice to, to, to worship God and to sit at his, at his feet, and we should do likewise. The third thing is that true worship is marked by reverence. We see this as these men appear before Jesus, these priestly political leaders. They're kind of like big deal. They have quite a bit of money too. And they go before Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, this poor Jewish family in this house, and they kneel down. They fell down, the text says, and worship this, this child. Clearly, they recognize there was no equality between them, right? But if you were looking at it from the outside unaware of what was going on. It would look strange to see these very opulent people, these powerful, seemingly wealthy people kneeling before this small, poor boy. 
if you didn't understand who this boy was, that he was the divine creator of the entire world and he was the savior who would one day make a way for all people to be united with God by faith. I mean, this is an amazing uh, figure. He is the true king of Israel, the Messiah, and they fell down before him and they worshiped him. So when we come to worship, it's not something we should be flippant about or disrespectful. Rather, we should be reverent and humble and worship in reverence. The last thing uh, that I'll highlight is finally, true worship requires giving. We see giving as an important element of this story, right? Now, don't worry, I'm not going to turn this into, this is the year end, you know, amp up the giving, guys, the end of year uh, giving. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I think this is an important aspect of this story. They came to worship God, and they did that through giving gifts. Now, I bring this up because this is a, an important element that we can't overlook to this story. And they gave gifts that clearly demonstrated that these men had a lot of wealth, right? We see in verse 11 that it says uh, they opened their treasures, and no doubt they gave a portion, a, a sizable portion of their wealth to him. They gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, no doubt these gifts that they gave to Jesus were helpful to, to allow them to escape to Egypt and to eventually get back to Nazareth because they were in a situation where they didn't have much means, right? They had left uh, Nazareth. They traveled all the way to Bethlehem. They didn't have any family. It's hard to say how much money they had, but they were poor and in need, and these men came to worship and to give and to support. Um, I don't want to go into too much detail about the actual gifts, although there's interesting things that can be learned about them. Some scholars think that each gift points to a different aspect of Jesus's ministry, right, as king, as priest, and eventually as sacrifice. And we kind of highlighted that in the hymn that, that we were singing earlier, um, which is very interesting. But the point, I think, is that these men came to worship, and one crucial element of their worship was giving. Likewise, one of the ways that we worship when we come uh, before God is through giving, and that's often done through money, finances, like the, the gold of these wise men, or it could be through donating items that we have, uh, like the other gifts that they brought to, to, this, uh, to Jesus, right? There are many ways that we can give. Um, and you might be in a situation also where you don't have a lot at your disposal currently and there's not a lot that you can give by way of money. Well, you can also give of your time and your talents to, to serve God and to bless others in our church, bless others in the community. So there's many ways that we can give. And I'm honestly very uh, encouraged at the generosity that we have in this church. We filled more than two barrels of items for the Canby Center this, that we're going to be helping out this week. And, uh, you know, many of you give generously, which is wonderful. But it's something that we constantly ought to remind ourselves about. Because Jesus actually says later in Matthew chapter 6 that... Um, where your treasure is, there is your heart. He says this in, in Matthew 6, starting in 19. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It points to where your hope is based. The giving that you give in worship points to that. So, we ought to take an inventory of our own life and ask ourselves, wherever we spend the majority of our time, our money, our talents, indicates what is most important to us, where our greatest hope lies, right? Or, as Jesus says, where our heart is. 
Um, is it in your job? Is it in your ambitions? Is it in a, in a hobby? Is it in you know, amassing sort of possessions? Or are you giving worshipfully to God um, uh, sacrificially? But ultimately, the most important gift that we give to God is not even monetary, right? It is our faith. It's our obedience and our allegiance to Him. Those things are the most important gift that we give as we worship God. We can't truly worship Him if we are holding back our loyalty and giving allegiance to other things. So these wise men clearly put their hope in the true king, right, who was Jesus, this Messiah, not the false one, not Herod, which led their hearts to worship rightly in all of these ways that we've been talking about. But where did they end up? Where were they headed? Um, Unlike the account of King Herod, we don't have really good historical records of where these wise men ended up. We do see in this text that they had headed back home, of course, but church tradition holds that they continued in the faith. They, uh, you know, pledged their allegiance to Christ, and eventually they were given saintly status by the church. Uh, is it, did that truly happen? Are we, uh, can we be certain that that was the truth? Maybe not. But I think this story demonstrates to us that they had the right outlook, that their hope was in the right place, and as a result, they ended up um, enjoying an eternity with God. So one thing is for certain, though, in this story, they did not, uh, you know, obey this false king Herod and go back and tell him where the, the Messiah was. Instead, they listened to God because God came to them in a dream and they went home in peace. Their hope was in the true king, Jesus. So the question before us is, where is our greatest hope? Where have we placed our greatest hope? What is that thing that is drawing us into worship? And ultimately, where will that leave us in the future? Is it in ourselves? Is it in our own abilities? Is it in our own ambitions? Um, Is it in our own holiness or religious activity? We think about Herod. One interesting part of this is he was, he had a front up, right? He he pretended as if he wanted to study the scriptures and worship the Christ, Um, but that wasn't what he was doing at all. If anything, we often do this where we will um, put time and energy into trying to earn God's favor by doing many religious activities as if that is the way um, that we can earn favor with God, but that is just not the case. The, The only way that we can do that is to put our hope in Christ alone and recognize that we could never earn earn that salvation, but repent and turn to him. Now, we've been looking at Jesus as a child, right, in his first advent, which means arrival. We're highlighting this first time that he came into history, and that's what we celebrate in the Christmas time, of course. But it also leads us to think about the second advent. There is another arrival that is coming, and we are a people between two arrivals, two advents. Just as Jesus came the first time that we've been looking at as a baby boy, right? A poor Jewish boy in a manger. And he lived a humble life where he served many, he taught many, he healed many. And of course, he gave his life as a ransom for those who would trust in him. Um, He gave his life on the cross. And of course, he didn't remain on the cross. He rose again from the dead and demonstrated his power, but then he ascended on into heaven. So that was his first arrival, and we now are awaiting that second one. One day he will return as a victorious conquering king to finally set the world right. And the question before us again is, where is our hope? 
Have we placed it firmly in him? Are we worshiping him rightly? And if so, we have a future that we can hold on to that's firm and we can look forward to. Uh, this is described really well in the book of First Peter as he opens his book. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have a, a hope of Christ's return if we have put our hope fully in God, recognizing that we could do nothing to earn it, but he gives it all of grace. That is the living hope that we have. Um, and I hope that you have put your faith in that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, are just so amazed at your, what you have done, that you have sent your only son into this world as a poor uh, boy, as a poor human like us, to live a, a humble life and to ultimately give his life as a ransom for us who put our faith in him. What an amazing gift that we're celebrating and looking to. And that is the only foundation where we can have any lasting hope, any real hope. Lord, I, I just pray now, those of us in here today who might have not put their hope in you, that you would soften their hearts, open their minds to see that you alone are the only hope that we can stand upon. Uh, help us to see that. Help us to walk in that, live in that, to worship well, to worship rightly in light of that. Um, help us to see where we veer and where we might start to hope in other things that we should not be hoping in, God. Um, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for all the lessons that you have taught us this morning. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.